Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we're diving into Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson, a seminal masterpiece that explores the deep-seated phenomenon of nationalism. Within its compelling narrative, Anderson unravels why nations have become such a forceful source of identity in the modern era. This book is not just a historical investigation. It's a journey through the intricate relationship between capitalism, the invention of the printing press, evolving religious ideologies, and the birth of national consciousness. Written by the late esteemed Cornell University, Professor Benedict Anderson, known for his expertise in international studies and Southeast Asian scholarship, Imagined Communities, draws upon his proficiency in multiple Asian languages and his broad academic contributions. Anderson's fluency in the language of history and his global perspective make his insights particularly resonant. Readers familiar with his other works like Under Three Flags or his memoir A Life Beyond Boundaries can expect the same level of scholarly rigor and intellectual curiosity. This book beckons to a diverse audience from history enthusiasts who relish unraveling the past to thinkers and theorists passionate about groundbreaking concepts. It's also a perfect match for anyone curious about the origins of our world's nation-states and the unspoken ties that forge collective identities. Join us as we summarize the essential elements of imagined communities and learn how historical forces have shaped the map of human belonging. Imagined Communities, Reflections on the Origin and Spread of Nationalism. Introduction. Explore the origins of nations and the fabric of nationalism. Once upon a time, the notion of a nation as we know it was as ethereal as a dream. The vast stretches of the earth were divided not by the rigid lines of nation-states, but by the fluid grasps of empires. Think of a patchwork quilt with ever-shifting patterns. That was the world map, marked by sprawling domains like the Roman Empire and the Mughal Empire. Within these empires, power flowed through the veins of royal families, with conquests, marriages, and spiritual conquests knitting together a diverse array of people under expansive reigns. Yet, as the hands of the clock moved relentlessly towards the close of the 18th century, the seeds of a radical idea began to sprout, the concept of nationalism. Picture an awakening where groups like the Bulgarians, Czechs, and Serbs saw their bonds not through the lens of royal dynasties, but through the mirror of their unique identities, each yearning for a sovereign home. This was the dawn of what we call the imagined community. Consider for a moment that communities, especially those extending beyond the intimate circle of a village, are conjured up in the collective mind. They're stitched together by shared beliefs and common bonds but are fundamentally imagined, as no one can truly know every member. In the past, these bonds were often woven by religious allegiance or loyalty to a dynasty, yet nations recast this tapestry, with nationality becoming the new thread that connected people to an imagined community, a concept that required meaning and a narrative all its own. In our exploration, we'll trace the footsteps that led to the birth of national consciousness. How did distinct groups morph into the nations of Spaniards and Algerians? That's the fascinating journey we're about to embark on, uncovering the intricacies of how nationality emerged and how nationalism took hold. 
Along this exploration, you'll discover the uncanny resemblance between the constructs of nationalism and religious frameworks and how they diverge from traditional political ideologies. The role that the quest for expanding markets among booksellers played in fanning the flames of nationalism and how the scholarly pursuit of linguistics set empires on edge and turned language into a field of contestation. Part 1. Unraveling the Spiritual Fabric of Nationalism We arrive in this world without a say, handed a random deck of cards that decides everything from our ancestry to our capabilities. Yet through all of life's uncertainties, death remains the one unyielding certainty. This dichotomy, the unpredictable nature of life and the inevitability of death, has perennially cast a solemn shadow over human consciousness. It's these existential puzzles that lie at the heart of many ancient belief systems, driving humanity's quest for meaning. In stark contrast, today's ideologies often step away from mysteries they can't parse through science. Questions of the afterlife or the purpose of existence aren't addressed in political discourse with ideologies like liberalism or Marxism focused on more tangible concerns. Nationalists, however, are different. They deal in the currency of immortality, and therein lies our central point. Nationalism is not a religion, yet it embraces that sense of connection and eternity more akin to faith than to political ideologies. Let's reflect on the concept of cenotaphs, monuments dedicated to the memory of soldiers whose names we do not know. Their anonymity isn't an oversight, but a profound statement. These memorials to the unknown soldiers are powerful precisely because they are unclaimed by individual identity, transforming them into symbols of collective sacrifice and the promise of enduring legacy. Nationalism shares this spiritual undertone with long-enduring religions. Faiths, including Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam, carved their niches across cultures and centuries by hitting on a universal human chord, the desire for meaning in the chaos of life, the yearning for continuity that binds past, present, and future in a never-ending cycle. It's no coincidence that as the light of traditional religions dimmed during Europe's Enlightenment era, nationalism began to rise. The Enlightenment, with its focus on reason over faith, cracked the age-old foundations religion provided, leaving a chasm within the human experience. Modern life, stripped of the tranquility of an afterlife or the concept of paradise, had begun to feel alarmingly random. This void left by the receding tide of religious certainty became fertile ground for the seeds of nationalism. Promising a sense of community and continuity, nationalism offered a new form of eternity. Before we dive into the essence of nationalism itself, let us first explore the cultural currents that paved its way. Part 2. Diverging Tongues and Sacred Scripts as Empire's Cohesive Force Envision the serenity of Mecca in the 17th century, the cobblestone streets echoing with the murmurs of pilgrimage, the air scented with the mingling of distant lands. Among the throng of worshippers, two pilgrims meet, one from the Philippine Sultanate of Maguindanao, the other a Berber from Morocco's mountains. Despite vast geographic and cultural distances that separate them, they regard each other as kin. What binds them? The Arabic of the Quran, the revered tongue that unites all Muslims in faith. 
Herein lies an insight. Sacred languages acted as a powerful adhesive for the vast and varied tapestry of empires and spiritual communities. These lingual linchpins, be it Quranic Arabic, Imperial Chinese, or Ecclesiastical Latin, shared a trio of defining traits. Firstly, they lived primarily in script, silent symbols read by the eyes, rather than sounds communicated by the voice. It's akin to the universal language of mathematics, a Thai scholar and a Romanian student, while speaking disparate tongues both understand the silent language of mathematical signs. Secondly, these languages conveyed the truth. They were not just any means of communication. They bore divine imprimatur, a gateway to understanding the very essence of existence. This elevated status meant that learned Europeans would converse about agriculture in German or Swedish, yet they turned to Latin for discourses on philosophy or theology. And so the idea that certain languages held a sacred connection to truth shaped the boundaries of empires and religious identities. When barbarians began to master the characters of the Middle Kingdom, it was seen as a journey towards civility. It was through such mastery that individuals from different ethnicities could transform. Mongols assimilating into Chinese dynasties, Turkish nomads embracing Islam. In a world where divine languages opened doors to universal truths, there seemed no end to the potential expanse of these spiritual and imperial realms. Yet, the late Middle Ages witnessed a decline in these traditional powers, largely due to a process known as vernacularization, the disintegration of a singular sacred script dissolving into a mosaic of local dialects. This shift was significantly driven by the advent of capitalism and the disruptive force of the printing press, topics we shall delve into further as our narrative unfolds. Part 3. The Printed Word. A Catalyst for Nationalism. Once upon a time, books were treasured rarities, painstakingly reproduced by hand in cloistered scriptoria. A single collection of a dozen volumes was a testament to a library's wealth. But the winds of change blew with Gutenberg's press in the 15th century, turning books from prized artifacts into widespread commodities. By the dawning of the 16th century, 20 million volumes had unfurled their pages to the world, a number that leaped to 200 million by the century's end. Francis Bacon, with the clarity of a seer, noted the seismic shift in the world's appearance and state brought about by this invention. With this transformation, even the tongues of Europe began to morph. Here's our revelation. The advent of print capitalism set the stage for distinctive national languages and the inception of modern nationalism. Ask yourself, who were the artisans behind this explosion of the written word? Enter the capitalists, the pioneers of the book industry, which swiftly became a prime model of European enterprise. The mechanics of capitalism demanded continual expansion, new markets to conquer, new readers to enthrall. Initially, publishers catered to a select audience fluent in Latin, but soon the tide turned towards the monolingual masses. To reach this wider audience, publishers began to print in the vernacular, the everyday language of the common people. This drive for profits ignited the spread of vernacular prints, aligning with the religious tides of the Reformation. In times past, the Vatican had stifly quelled any whispers of dissent, 
maintaining a firm grip on the spread of information. But when Martin Luther unveiled his theses in the vernacular German of 1517, the game changed. Within a fortnight, his message had rippled through the nation, testament to a burgeoning market for German-language publications. What emerged were two previously unseen phenomena, vernacular print languages and a literate public that bridged the chasm between the illiterate masses and the Latin literate elite. As this trend washed over Europe, a linguistic unification began. Distinct dialects of French, English, and Spanish grew intelligible in print, if not in speech. Equally significant was the dawning collective consciousness among readers. They became acutely aware of the multitudes who spoke their language, and also of those who did not. This recognition was a monumental leap towards imagining communities bound not by kin or creed, but by the shared brushstrokes of language on the canvas of nationhood. Part 4. The Press. Shaping a Nation's Collective Consciousness. In the past, the words of sacred texts in languages like Latin and Arabic united legions of faithful, each individual bound to the next by spiritual kinship with the divine. However, with the advent of standardized national languages, sparked by the power of print, a new secular communion was emerging, one centered not on the heavens but on the very earth beneath our feet. A particular format played a pivotal role in this transformation. Our core idea here is, the rise of vernacular newspapers helped forge an awareness of a shared national consciousness and common interests among the populace. Consider Hegel's observation that for the modern man, the newspaper had become a secular substitute for morning devotions. To understand this, let's delve into the act of prayer, a solitary yet unified expression of faith, with believers spread across the globe, each whispering the same ancient incantations in their own cloistered corners. Imagine their awareness of this silent, vast fraternity, unseen yet palpably present. Now transpose this vision onto the act of unfolding a newspaper. It's a daily ritual where readers, cupping their steaming morning beverages, leaf through the day's chronicles. They are acutely cognizant that they are not alone. Countless others share this moment, a synchrony of turning pages and absorbing headlines. The experience is validated as they witness fellow commuters, barbershop patrons, and cafe dwellers immersed in identical replications of their morning read. It's a shared experience that bridges the individual with an unseen multitude, thus anchoring the notion of an imagined yet very real collective existence. Newspapers tailor reality through a national lens, directing readers' gazes towards events colored by their country's perspectives. An upheaval in a far-off land is understood not through the eyes of its citizens, but through the nation's own storytelling mediums. And should news from that distant land fade from the pages, the assumption isn't an erasure of existence, but rather a temporary narrative absence, like a subplot paused until its reappearance serves the grander tale. The editorial decisions of what is newsworthy thus sculpt a sense of a shared national agenda. What concerns the nation finds its way to the paper. What's deemed irrelevant fades into temporary obscurity. It's in this way that newspapers consolidate a sense of collective identity among the myriad of unknown readers, 
each engaging with the same vernacular script. It is what allows a person, say, an American, to share an unspoken bond with millions of others, creating a fabric of collective belonging woven into the very concept of a nation. Part 5. The Linguistic Awakening That Reshaped European Nationalism Europe once saw itself not merely as a continent, but as the culmination of divine favour, the holy union of Christian virtue and Hellenistic wisdom. Yet, as European sails dotted the horizon toward unknown lands, this perception unraveled in the face of newfound diversity. Here's the essence. A linguistic renaissance in the 19th century energized nationalism across Europe. The age of exploration forced Europeans to confront the practical need to communicate with the varied cultures they encountered. As trade and travel flourished, so too did a fascination with languages. It wasn't long before the study of tongues such as Sanskrit and the hieroglyphs of ancient Egypt unearthed revelatory insights. Antiquity, it turned out, was a rich mosaic of civilizations, some predating the venerated worlds of Greece and Judea. This plurality of the past gave rise to philology, the scientific study of the evolution of languages. This field's ascendancy shattered the exalted status of languages like Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, disproving their claims of ancient origins and divine origins. Stripped of their sacred veneer, they now jostled on equal footing with the vernacular the everyday speech of the common folk. Europeans thus faced a revolutionary idea. If all languages were grounded in the same earthly origins, didn't each deserve equal study and esteem? The 19th century answered with a fervent affirmative, sparking a campaign of lexicographic industriousness as philologists began to chronicle folk tales, curate dictionaries, and craft literary histories in their native tongues. The more these scholars immersed themselves in the vernacular, the more they perceived unique communities within speech patterns and folklore. These findings became the intellectual scaffolding for nationalist movements clamoring for sovereignty. Take the Ukrainian language. Its first grammatical framework was forged in 1819, and within a decade, through the poetry and folklore of Taras Shevchenko, it ascended to the echelons of a modern literary tongue. By 1846, the seeds of Ukrainian nationalism were sown with the founding of Kyiv's inaugural nationalist group. From Beirut, where American-educated intellectuals standardized modern Arabic, to Oslo, where Norwegians printed their initial dictionary in 1850, a consistent narrative unfolded. The cultivation and celebration of vernaculars were not merely acts of linguistic academics. They were deliberate, potent acts of national creation. Part 6. Nationalism and Empire, an incompatible match in Europe's evolving political landscape. Let's meet Antonin, a fictional Czech patriot in the twilight of the 19th century. Amidst Prague's cobbled streets and spired skyline, he speaks not the tongue of emperors but the language of his ancestors. Antonin immerses himself in Czech literature, revels in the music of nationalist composers like Smetana and Dvorak, and nurtures a yearning the dream of being governed by his Czech kin, not distant rulers. Antonin's aspirations encapsulate a fundamental clash. The rise of nationalism became the unraveling of Europe's multinational empires, for nationalism's core values stood in stark defiance of imperial domination. During this era, 
the European tapestry was a mosaic of empires enmeshing numerous ethnicities. The Habsburgs reigned over a domain of German, Hungarian, Croatian, Slovak, Italian, and Czech peoples, while the Romanos presided over a realm teeming with Russians, Finns, Tatars, Letts, and Armenians. The lingual diversification, heralded by the philologists, introduced a profound conundrum to these empires. Consider the Habsburgs. In the 1780s, Emperor Joseph II, opting for practicality, transitioned the state language from Latin to German, a move reasoned by Germans' modernity and prevalence amongst the populace. An excellent strategy for unity, or so it seemed. But for nationalists like Antonin, this move felt like an imposition, a favoring of Germanic interests to the detriment of the empire's diverse voices. Were the Habsburgs to favor another language instead, they'd only inflame and alienate a different faction within their borders. Several empires tried to navigate these treacherous waters by crafting a sanctioned state nationalism, one that championed the majority ethnicity while pressuring minorities into compliance. The Russian Empire's Russification is a case in point, a policy that sought to suffocate minority languages under the weight of imperial Russian. The result? Unrest and rebellion flared like wildfire. This tension wasn't just a troublesome snag, but a fundamental ideological rift. Nationalism is built on the belief that nations are rightfully led by those who echo their citizenry's image and voice, an axiom inherently at odds with the patchwork sovereignties of multinational empires. Part 7. From Colonial Subjects to Nation Builders. The Transformative Journey of African and Asian Intellectuals. The cataclysm of the First World War marked the end for the sprawling empires of Europe. The once mighty Austro-Hungarian, Russian and Ottoman giants crumbled away, giving rise to a constellation of sovereign nations. The newly minted League of Nations stepped in as the steward of international diplomacy, once the preserve of bygone empires. But as Europe adapted to this new national order, Questions hung in the balance over the fate of colonies spanning Africa and Asia. The dawn of an answer was not far behind. In their quest for self-determination, African and Asian intellectuals harvested European thoughts and sowed them within the fertile ground laid by colonial experiences to cultivate their own nations. Here's how they achieved it. First was the technological revolution, the period from 1850 to the early 20th century saw an extraordinary leap in global connectivity. Telegraph cables hummed with the rapid exchange of ideas, while steamships and railways shrunk the distances between colonies and the imperial heartlands. From this cauldron of knowledge and interaction, colonized minds absorbed revolutionary concepts, understanding the cries for independence that echoed across Europe. Education played an influential role too. Colonial schools, with their standardized curriculums, encapsulated students from manifold heritages within a singular stream of learning. In places like the Dutch East Indies, the educational journey led students from a splintered archipelago to converge in shared academic centers, crystallizing a vision of one unified land. Another stark unifier was the harsh blade of racism wielded by colonial rulers. Colonial administrations tended to view their subjects not as tapestries of diverse cultures, but as a homogenous group of natives. 
this disregard for their nuanced identities inadvertently fused them into a collective bound together by shared oppression and a common struggle. Born from this milieu was an intelligentsia, bilingual and versed in Western education, deeply familiar with the nationalistic fervor that had reshaped Europe and experientially aware of the colonial domain as a contiguous entity shared by kindred spirits. This enlightened class stood at the helm as myriad nations, each distinct, from the verdant plains of Angola to the history-etched sands of Egypt and the verdant deltas of Vietnam, navigated the currents towards sovereignty from the Second World War through the 1970s. Final Summary In the symphony of human history, nationalism has composed a powerful movement, envisioning nations as communities bound by shared threads, interests, cultural traits, and the linchpin of language. Not quite a political manifesto, nationalism resonates more closely with the tapestry of religious faith, offering solace and a sense of belonging amidst life's unpredictability. The roots of nationalism can be traced back to the economic aspirations of print capitalism. As the appetite for new readerships grew, the lofty realm of sacred languages was left behind in favor of the common vernacular, languages like German and French, that the masses spoke and understood. This shift invited people to visualize themselves as part of broader communities, united by words and dialects that transcended individual existence. The advent of standardized vernaculars and the proliferation of newspapers solidified these nascent bonds. A collective awareness of national interests began to crystallize, eroding the fabric of Europe's sprawling multinational empires and challenging the imperial reach beyond the continent. Through these turning pages of national consciousness, from the age of empires to the era of self-determination, we witness the making and remaking of world maps. Nationalism has not just sketched the boundaries of countries. It has etched a deep narrative into the identity of peoples, an imagined yet intensely felt sense of belonging that continues to define and reshape our global landscape. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then. Happy reading and happy listening.